Strikey, lovely to meet you. Um, it's lovely to meet you, Jeff. Oh, well, thank you very much. And you're based in Australia. Whereabouts? Uh, I'm in Sydney. I'm in uh, Sydney's Northern Beaches, a place called D.Y. Uh, Manly is directly opposite the other end of uh, Sydney Harbour. And we're about six kilometres north of Manly, still on the uh, coast. It's uh, one, a horseshoe bay, one of the probably one of the better horseshoe bays on the whole of the east coast of Australia. So it's a lovely place. It's, it's a beautiful coast. My, myself and my family, we, we lived in Caloundra for a while, had a house there. And, really? Uh, yeah, we, we were doing a couple of films. And um, so quite a long time we were on the beach there at Caloundra. And I just love that area. Absolutely fantastic. It's, um, I, I must admit, every morning we sort of wake up, we go down to the beach, I have a swim in the ocean pool, we go and have coffee at one of the dozens of sort of cafes around and you just think, well, there must be worse places in the world to live. <laughs> I think there might be. Yeah. <laughs> I was just, just looking at, at, at um, some information on you and it just says, uh, diving since 1961 with a background that encompasses uh, military, commercial, scientific, recreational and technical diving. What did you do in the military? Oh, can't you tell me? I mean, uh, oh, no, I can. I can. It's very, very easy. Um, <laughs> I, um, first of all, I'd better explain. My whole family were involved in diving. I say my whole family, not my father, but uh, his brother um, was a commercial diver. Their father had been in the Navy and had uh, briefly sort of been involved in diving. And uh, I just grew up listening to stories of diving. And on the other side of the family, there was another a uh, person who was also involved, something to do with diving. So growing up at the end of World War II, um, everyone had military heroes. My military heroes were the frogmen, uh, the, the people that we all sort of heard about then in the late 40s. And being sort of somewhat involved with the Navy through my father and his brother and my grandfather... Um, we went down to Portsmouth. I can remember seeing the charioteers going through their paces. The, these are the human torpedoes in Portsmouth Harbour. So it was something I always wanted to do. And as soon as I was old enough, I actually joined the Navy. And in those days, you had to volunteer to become a, a diver. And I was right on the cusp of the changeover from... Um, shallow water diving which was the oxygen rebreathers they were switching to open circuit air so interestingly the shallow water breathing course was a two-week course on o2 rebreathers um, using a single hose um, the, the, the rebreathing apparatus was a single hose with the protosorb canister on the front. The switch to open circuit air was a twin hose. <laughs> and, um, yeah, so 
uh, I fronted up at the diving school. I volunteered for diving, went to the diving school. The, the entry level uh, school then was a four week course, ship's diver down at Plymouth. Fronted up as an 18 year old with a kit bag over my shoulder. Fronted up to the chief petty officer with my draft papers clasped in my hand and presented myself. And he, the chief petty officer, like all chief petty officers, they have this raucous Sid James sort of voice. And it, it was, right, what's your name, lad? Um, strike, chief. Strike, A. Eh? have got some relatives called Strike. What's your father's name? I said, Roy, chief. He said, Roy, eh? He said, I'm your uncle, lad. You will pass this effing course. And I thought, ripper, there's nothing wrong with nepotism. Because what he meant was, this is an order, not a, <laughs> not a, you've got to get it easy. And as soon as the petty officers running the course heard that I was related to the chief, I got volunteered for everything. So it was a great course. Uh, we started off with uh, it was dry suit, twin tanks, twin hose, um, doing a whole variety of things over four weeks. And gradually they whittle everyone down. And uh, we started out, I think there was something close to 30 people started off and uh, five of us finished the course. And the only reason I finished the course, I was terrified of being beaten up by my uncle if, I, if I'd failed. So there were several times when I thought that I'd fail or give it, give it away. So, yeah, that was my, uh, the, the military diving, the start of it. And then... Uh, Oh, on a, on a frigate. So my first overseas trip was through the Mediterranean out to the Far East. Uh, sorry, am I? <laughs> so I'm just sort of crapping on. Okay. We got to, uh, this, this was at a time when Britain, the sun was setting on the British Empire at this stage. It wasn't just setting, it was crashing into the ocean. And uh, we got to Aden where there was uh, insurgency going on. And uh, it was there we had our first um, brush with sharks. And coming from the UK, we'd all heard about sharks and how evil they were and the fact they were just lurking around waiting to rip anyone that got into the water to shreds. And I was on a very small sort of little frigate and we pulled into Aden. And we were anchored a, a little way off steamer point there. And there was not a great deal to do. So the, the guys that were into fishing were sitting on the forecastle, dropping lines into the water to see if they could catch some fish. And it, it was that classic story of a little tug on the, on the line and they'd started to pull it in and a bigger tug and then a bigger tug and an even bigger tug. And it was the little fish being eaten by the next size up all the way through to the sharks. So our job there was to go and look for unexploded ordnance on the hulls of vessels in, in Aden. And needless to say, um, we were a little bit sort of wary about getting in the water with sharks. So we'd heard about shark repellent. So the um, diving officer on board said, fine, look, I've spoken to the supply officer. We're going to issue you with shark repellent packs. So when you're searching, you'll have these shark repellent packs. If you see a shark, all you do is pull this tab 
and it will release this cloud into the water and the sharks will be terrified and disappear. So that was fine. But they also put a longboat into the water with a sharpshooter at the front with a 303 rifle. And we were never certain whether the purpose of the guy with the 303 rifle was to shoot a shark if he saw one on the surface or to put a screaming diver out of its misery. But that was fine. We, we left Aden. Only about two weeks later, um, staying along with all sort of talking about these shark repellent packs and the diving officer sheepishly admitted that we didn't in fact have any shark repellent packs on board. What we did have was a lot of... Um, the dye packs that they put in life rafts. So all we were issued with was these dye packs. So yes, that was one of my exciting sort of <laughs> brush with sharks. Yeah, <laughs> so. uh, and, and then you typically left, um, left the forces and started up commercial diving in Australia? <laughs> no, 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 no. I, when I left the forces, um, the North Sea oil, oh, gas and oil God, platform had really sort of taken off at this That's stage. really hardcore, my goodness. Oh, yes. And the money was just outstanding. So needless to say, I thought, right, there it is. And I lived just down the road from the C.B. Gorman works that were then at Chesington. And having left the, left the Navy, I thought, well, before I go on to the oil rigs, I'll just get in touch with the people at C.B. Gorman and see if I can just do a quick sort of refresher course. And the guy running um, the diving operation at C.B. Gorman was a, a former commander, Commander Philip White, who had been one of the survivors from the Royal Oak in Scarpa Flow when it was sunk at the beginning of the war. Uh, and interestingly, this same guy, did you ever see the film The Silent Enemy? I did. Or, you're right. Yeah. And did you ever see Above Us the Waves? Yes. Right. The underwater scenes for Lawrence Harvey in The Silent Enemy was Commander Philip White. He, he was sort of Lawrence Harvey's stunt double playing Buster Crab in The Silent Enemy. So uh, I went to C.B. Gorman, had this wonderful time there, shown around their museum. It was just superb. And then trotted off, I, I got a job uh, with one of the um, companies on the um, North Sea oil rigs operating out of Great Yarmouth. And there were eight of us, um, mostly uh, um, eight of us. Six were ex-military. So there were two special, former special boat section Royal Marines, um, four Navy. One guy was a former paratrooper who had been the last mercenary out of the Belgian Congo and, and the um, eighth person, I think, he always boasted that he was a failed bank robber. Um, so it was a, sort of a somewhat motley crew. Um, but the money was good. We did two weeks on the rigs and, and then a week off and you fly around in helicopters and the food is or was superb compared with sort of food ashore. I think the death, um, the death rate on the 
oh, that was quite high, wasn't it, overall in the North Sea? Oh, yes. This was at the beginning. This was in the sort of very early 70s. Mm. And there was no control over diving. Yeah. Uh, in fact, uh, divers were, um, well, everyone, unions weren't allowed. So um, I think the death rate... Uh, just in the one year that I was at, 20 sort of divers died, you know, it was... Uh, yeah. Uh, and most of them were, or a lot of them, were ex-military as well. And it was always uh, ex-military people were preferred because it was always assumed that their training would give them a, an edge, uh, a survival edge. But uh, it, it was, um, yes, remarkable sort of... Uh, I, do, uh, I do remember... A Thinking uh, after doing all my training and stuff, uh, jobs were not easy to come by. And I thought, okay, North Sea, that's that's money is amazing, as you were saying, Dela. And I think a week, or as I was about to sign papers and things, uh, a media job materialized. And I thought, thank you, God, there is. <laughs> I could go and do something I. I think I'm going to love. <laughs> so it actually worked the other way around for me. I, um, um, we left the oil rigs. We decided to come to Australia. Sylvia, my wife's brother, had already uh, emigrated out here. And uh, we thought, well, why not? We actually applied, first of all, we wanted to go to Canada but it was 25 pounds each to emigrate to Canada. And all they kept sending me was information on how to be a coal miner in Manitoba, which really didn't sort of appeal terribly much. Then we thought of New Zealand, and that was 25 pounds to go to New Zealand. And as everyone knows, New Zealand's right on the edge of the world. You go further out from New Zealand and you fall off the edge. Then there was Australia that was just £10 to come here and immigrate. So, needless to say, we came to Australia. But, uh, I came with the intention of diving on the Bass Strait oil rigs that were taken off here. Um, however, unlike the UK, the divers here were unionised and there was an industrial dispute that lasted a whole year. So, <laughs> when I arrived... Thought, oh, I joined the union, which had to be one of probably one of the best unions in the world, in that the union card, the Professional Divers Association of Australia, showed a picture of myself, of course, and underneath it said, if found wandering, apparently intoxicated, he may be suffering from the bends and should be rushed immediately to the nearest decompression chamber. Ripper, that's a get out of jail free card if ever I saw one. But uh, yeah, there was no work. So I actually got a job, uh, a part time job teaching commercial diving, and then a full time job with one of the newspapers. <laughs> so I got, I went the opposite direction from you. I do, yes, <laughs> I do. I, 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 I do it. Remember, I think last time I worked in Australia was um, 96. We are doing a couple of films there. And a few years later, uh, it came out that you could only film or 
companies could only film in Australia if they used an Australian crew. Yeah. Is that still the case? Uh, I, I believe that it is. I believe that they, they still have these quota uh, things in place. And they also have, um, stepping back a bit, um, the North Sea was unregulated, so the death toll was absolutely horrendous. And, and at that point in the mid-70s, the Manpower Services Commission stepped in, decided that regulation was necessary, and that was later taken over by the HSC, the Health and Safety Executive, and training programs were put in place for, for the divers. And uh, that model was followed in Australia uh, to the point where now film crews coming in also have to have the necessary um, commercial qualification in, in order to work as, for example, cameramen. Yeah, but but foreign crews. Uh, I mean, my 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 aspect was documentary and wildlife and stuff, and and we couldn't even after that time we couldn't even come into Australia to film. We had to use Australian cameramen. Ooh. So I I assume that that's changed now. No, I. I honestly don't know. I, I would assume. I would assume that it has. Right. Yes. But, uh, yeah. It's a bit harsh. Yeah. But and I think right at the moment, of course, it's absolutely impossible for anyone to get in. You know, they keep closing the borders. So. Yeah. No. Of course. And you established um, an internationally affiliated media organisation. Yes, yes. So um, my, experience, my experience with the newspapers, I thought, this is so good. I was selling advertising and I thought that worked briefly for Murdoch and then started my own um, media representation company. And I gradually acquired um, two or three partners um, we looked after a whole range of public, The Times in the UK, uh, uh, The Guardian, Country Life, Spectator magazine, The New Yorker, uh, CNN, The Washington Post, Wirtschaftswoche in Germany, um, all of the New Zealand newspapers, The, the Wall Street Journal, um, Condé Nast Traveller. So th there was a big range of publications that we looked after. And um, we started to set up uh, affiliate companies in each of the states around Australia and also uh, became affiliated with overseas organisations, so principally in Asia. So that involved a lot of travel into the Asian uh, marketplace. And, and that was very, very enjoyable and fairly obviously took the opportunity to go diving at... Um, every opportunity but it, it also meant you know I could go in I went into places like um, Vietnam very early on before um, tourism took off uh, oh, Laos yes uh, yeah gosh and now you've there's um, Oztec uh, oh yes which is diving conferences you started that oh no I didn't no I think Oztec started. No, no, no. It's uh, um, 
Oztec started in 1999 by a guy called Richard Taylor. Richard was, the, was running TDI here in Australia. And I don't know if you ever saw that there used to be a television commercial, an American guy talking about the Philips um, electric shaver. And he said, I tried it, liked it so much, I bought the company. And it, it was a case of, I knew Richard, we, we had dived uh, and been involved in diving with um, uh, Bob Kaysen, who was one of the pioneer techies here. Um, Richard decided to start Oztech, um, a technical diving conference. It's very small when it started. Uh, the first people that came over in 1999, Brett Gilliam from TDI, um, Nuno Gomez, who had just uh, established then a depth record, uh, Richard Pyle from, from the States was over, a number of local people as well. So it was... It was small, but very, very focused on technology. Oh, Jim Bowden uh, was there. Um, it, it, it was superb. And uh, Richard really struggled. Uh, being a very small uh, operation, it really wasn't making a lot of money. It was, its appeal was to a very narrow sort of audience. So in terms of helping and assisting him with the next one in 2000. And 2002, um, I bought in and gradually sort of took over the, uh, the running of it. So that ran every two years uh, and, and would still run every two years were it not for COVID-19. It's, uh, it's been deferred. I... Sucro with a couple of the events. Sorry about that, Strikey. There seems to be a bit of an internet um, uh, fault. Only missed the last bit of what you said, um, but I think we got the story. I think we're all right. Yeah. Fingers, fingers crossed. Um, fingers crossed that uh, this will last. It's, it's who knows technology. It's, it's yeah. and. Um, Actually, what's diving like in Australia now? What's what's the what's the Barrow Reef and and all that beautiful diving on the west coast? Ah, uh, well, no, it's um, sadly uh, the diving industry, certainly in Queensland uh, and far north Queensland, the Cairns Townsville area, have always relied very heavily on international tourism. And fairly obviously because of the slowdown or virtual halt in international travel at the moment, uh, a lot of the operators up there are certainly sort of feeling the pinch. Um, some of them have had to uh, cut back dramatically. So they're, they're still welcoming people, of course, uh, mostly domestic now. Um, the liverboard operators, however, have certainly diminished in number in that um, barrier reef area. Uh, over on the, the west coast, and, and I'm not terribly au fait with what goes on uh, on the west coast, um, but they're, they, they're experiencing sort of similar, similar problems. Um, however, 
um, generally, the, the domestic diving market seems to be quite... Uh, th there are pockets where people are doing rather well, uh, certainly uh, in, in terms of teaching. Other areas, of course, they're, they're suffering as they're doing everywhere. But in terms of the actual diving, there's a stronger move towards tech diving now. I think, uh, uh, you know, rebreathers are becoming more accepted or accepted into the diving community. Uh, and the costs are coming down a little. And uh, the, the training costs are not necessarily as prohibitive as they once were. And also people are... Uh, Sounds horrible, but they're better educated about the need for education now and training. So, uh, and and I think the the agencies have done a and are doing an excellent job in helping that education. Uh, and certainly, newcomers like Raid have have made tremendous inroads in that regard. I saw you were talking to Paul the other day. So, ah, yeah. yes, indeed, yeah. indeed, and. But the actual state of reefs and things, um, I haven't seen it for a long time. It is, we hear about it deteriorating quite a lot, get <coughs> conflicting reports. Um, in your experience, what's uh, happening there? Um, there? There are areas that are obviously in decline, but when you, when you consider sort of 2,000 mile chain of reefs all the way down from over 2,000, miles um, there's the natural disasters that that take place the cyclones coming in for example are going to wreak havoc with some of the shallower uh, reefs the corals there um, there's the the global warming that uh, was was perhaps overemphasized in terms of the damage that it was doing and reports that I've seen suggests that some areas are absolutely flourishing. Where, uh, and certainly from my own experience, and, and this is some little while ago now, uh, years ago, the cod hole was one of the stops, major stops on the ribbon reefs for liverboards. And it looked a little bit like a lunar landscape. Uh, and the last time I went, it was just magnificent. So, you know, a lot of these places are coming back. and there, There's that to and fro. So oh, uh, it's certainly not as bad as some people sort of claim. Right, uh, right. Uh, oh, you know, it's good. It's, it's a bit of a relief to hear that. It gives us yeah. a little hope uh, for the future, which is, which is good. Yeah. Strike, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you um i know it's evening there and you know all the rest <laughs> that you took the time just what's on the horizon for you now um what are you going to do next or, or what would you like to do next oh, oh, um a trilogy of books so uh this diving history has always been one of you know it's been a great sort of passion of mine so there's um, a book of diving history but there's also the the more sort of um, personal uh, memoir if you like everyone writes their memoirs you need to do it uh, before you cark it um, 
and there, there are so many areas that I thoroughly enjoy. I've been very fortunate. Um, I was involved. Uh, oh, we never discussed Malta either. I was sent out to Malta by the Navy and um, it's where I got to meet George Wookie, who 10 years earlier had set a world record dive that, that still stands to the present day. Um, 1956, surface supply helium, oxyhelium helmet down to 600 feet with the purpose of seeing how deep a diver could go and perform meaningful work in terms of rescuing uh, stricken submarines. So, uh, you know, I was, I was uh, fortunate to sort of meet up with him uh, just before he left the Navy while I was still in, uh, in Malta in 66. Um, and I was, that was my first photography experience as well. I was given a, two Calypso cameras that we had on the end of an iron bar. And the idea was to click both of them simultaneously and create 3D photographs of uh, research into the thermocline releasing diabetes. So yeah, it was great fun. So, oh, sorry. Uh, so there, there's all of this. <laughs> there's all of these things. There's the stories told by the, the divers on the oil rigs. I mentioned the, uh, the, the former sort of special boat section Royal Marines and um, some of the stories are sort of politically sensitive I, I guess but you think they've got to be told <laughs> so, are you writing this now or are you about to start? oh yeah I've been on it's been an ongoing thing but it's one of those I keep sort of pushing it to one side and thinking yeah. I think I'll go for a walk or <laughs> take a dog for a walk I think it's going to be a fabulous read. Uh, it's, it's, it's quite fun, because, and particularly with the Navy, because a, a lot of the things that people do or did, um, it sounds like fiction. And it's not. <laughs> it's absolutely true. And, uh, you know, the story of smuggling an elephant back on board ship in Borneo, it's... <laughs> it's Oh, can you tell us briefly what that was, or is it? <laughs> well, um, we we were we were in Borneo, uh, in Jesselton or Kota Kinabalu, and the small frigate that we were on was alongside the wall, the jetty, and you could just walk into town in in those days. It was only sort of a couple of paved roads, but they had uh, a circus had come to town, so. Myself and my mate Sam were sure we had a few beers and wandering back to the ship, past the circus that was at the edge of the jetty. And there were the elephants lined up behind bamboo poles, all standing there, big elephants. And right at the very end was the elephant keeper with a little stand selling bananas to people so that they could feed the elephants. And right at the end was a little baby elephant. And no one was feeding it bananas. So Sam and I brought a bunch of bananas and thought, let's feed the baby elephant. And the baby elephant, not being as well trained as the other elephants, stepped across the bamboo pole. And we thought, oh, this is good. And we laid 
bananas down and the elephants started to follow eating the bananas we thought we'll take it back on board so we went off leaving a little trail of bananas and the elephants started to follow us and we got to the gangway leading up to the officer of the watch and and we looked up and the officer of the watch looked down and there was a baby elephant following us it followed us home can we keep it sir <laughs> and <clears throat> needless to say he was not impressed he ordered us to come on board and face sort of some sort of disciplinary punishment we looked up and at that point the elephant keeper had seen that his little baby elephant was missing and came rushing down screaming and was probably going to sort of murder the two of us so we ran up the gangway and disappeared quickly and the elephant keeper managed to get his baby elephant and lead it back meanwhile shouting curses on our heads so we never actually managed to get it aboard but very nearly <laughs> uh, you must please tell me when you finish your book <laughs> uh, I, I would love to read it my goodness <laughs> strike it it's um as i say it's been an absolute pleasure a delight and um to meet you and talk to you um thank you again for taking the time i think i think we'll we'll stop there and okay, uh, i wish you success um with the book and everything else thank you very much and jeff thank you it was absolute delight talking to you and of course you're in a, such a lovely part of the world ah uh. When the sun comes out, it's not too bad. Yeah. It's, if I didn't live in Australia and at DY, I'd live in Cornwall. So. There you are. Brilliant. Yeah. Well, look, you take care. Bye now. Thank you. Bye. Bye.